Hello, faithful listener, it's Toby Haydoke's Who's Round, episode 50. How marvellous. Hello everybody, this is the first time somebody's come to me for uh, a Who's Round, um, is obviously desperate to talk to me, <laughs> and today I've watched The Web of Fear and Enemy World, and I've been on BBC Breakfast talking about Douglas Canfield, but that's not the highlight of my Who Day, because <laughs> I'm going to ask my next victim to tell me who he is and why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who. Hello, I am Russell T Davis, and I'm actually sitting here in Toby Towers, <laughs> Hey Doug Towers, I've come to meet the great man, it's the first time we've met, isn't it? It is. Hello. Hello, why are you doing this? We've been gossiping for hours before we started, <laughs> there's hours of stuff we can't ever tell you. I'm doing this because, do you know what, I think, I think this is the only interview I'm doing for the 50th, partly because everyone else is phoning up, they've been phoning all year, Toby, since January. Every paper, every website, and it's just kind of easier to say no in the end. But I love your Who's Rounds, and I think, and I wanted to meet you, and I love running through corridors, and I love your DVD commentaries, and you're just you're a huge part of Doctor Who, I think. So um, here I am. This is it. This is the fiftieth anniversary interview. It is. For me. Well, that's very nice. Good. Hooray! Hooray. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, right. Well, so well, he gives you two different types of chocolate biscuit. So <clears throat> I think we need to dive straight in. Or, yeah, I think we need to dive straight in and talk about um, Rose. Yeah. Because you've done some interviews recently for Doctor Who magazine, a couple of lovely uh, documentaries on the DVDs, where the genesis has been talked about and all yes. that sort of thing. Um, but what about the actual making of that very first episode? You, were you reinventing how to make a certain type of television that hadn't really been done in Britain? I th- th- absolutely true that none of us have done it. Because you think you know it all, because... We'd all done bits of green screen, and you don't do bits of prosthetics. You have old age prosthetics in shows, but no one ever done something with so many stunts, with child stunt performers, midget stunt performers, um, as green screen and and uh, a London shoot and just everything all at once with big stars as well. It was you know, you can start out a new show with some of those elements, but then it's got everything. Doctor Who's just got everything. It's got the so we were new to the pyrotechnics and to everything all at once. And we were a very, very experienced team. It's, it's, it's not like we were, we were children. A lot of us have made a lot of shows. But putting everything together into that show, and it being so important as well, let's be honest, it's, 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 it was just the most important thing in our lives, for, especially people like me and Phil, to get Doctor Who right. So, and that was true of a lot of the team. Neil Gorton on prosthetics, he loves Doctor Who. There's a lot of love for the show in there. So somehow that kind of ramps up the tension and the... And uh, and also the joy of it, I have to say. So, ooh, it was a nightmare. But never, it's always a nightmare making telly. Though I have to say, I always read those stories about the making of Rose. I read Phil doing an interview. Always oh, a nightmare. We're behind schedule and this happened that. It's always like that. You know that, don't you? You've mm-hmm. been on set. It's always you, the schedule is always too long for the day, and money is always tight. So I kind of think it's getting a little bit anecdotized with the passing of time. Is that a word? Yeah. Anecdotized. It's becoming a little bit of a. Actually, every day we shot, every day we filmed. I think we went over by a week or something. On a brand new show, that's not that bad. So that's less of an anecdote, isn't it? Well, interesting. <laughs> there's some interesting tonal things that I, that I remember, I don't know what that says about me or about Doctor Who fans, was that after the episode, which I loved, uh, my one disappointment was, 
you didn't actually see anyone die. Does that mean you can't show people die on British television anymore? Because I didn't know what the right. rules are. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, children's yeah, yeah. television mm. didn't have gun battles and things like it did when we were kids. I thought, oh God, is that what has to happen now? Because you didn't see Clive die. You don't actually no. see... So was that something that you had to sort of seed in later or was that just something that I'd read Not into it? particularly. It's, 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 a funny, it's a funny thing about... Because we're now a single camera show. The whole show is a lot more real. This affects everything about the show, the writing of it. I mean, in many ways, I would argue, I think, the show was about the Doctor. In a way, it never was in the entire history of the classic show, actually about the Doctor. Now, I think the profound difference is now, he's the lead character in a drama, which is about the Doctor. It's about his life. And also, the same is true with the companion. It's, they're the lead show, the lead actor in a story about their lives and their hopes and their dreams and their passions. Before, I think they were the lead characters in an adventure show, which is a different thing. Mm -hmm. um, if you take that as your baseline, it's like everything's a bit more real. And also, the proscenium arch has gone, of the, of the four cameras set up. It's, everything is shot as if on location. It's a single camera, it's in there. So, in other words, what I'm saying is if you, here we are just all having watched The Web of Fear, where those soldiers die marvelously, where the web goes on. And like, ah, that's quite violent, those shots. Mm. I, I love them. But actually, if they were shot now, if they were as real as, I'm using the word real in inverted commas, television real, but if they were as real now, what do you call Clive is shot in the face. He's shot in the face. His skull would explode and blood would splatter on his wife and son. Of course we're not going to show that. I actually think it's more violent now. Because that's what happens to Clive. He is shot by a gun in the face. In the old days, you grab your stomach and go, and fall over backwards. Now, because the camera's in there, because the camera is actually in their faces and everything is more real in inverted commas, it's much harder than it was to show violence. I remember mm. the long, long debates we had about the master having to get shot in Last of the Time Lords. He's shot by his wife, and that's a proper gun. You know, it, it would have taken a, a second in a script for her to pick up a laser. She could have picked up the laser screwdriver and shot him. Fantasy death, easy. But if she's in that red dress, she's got a black eye, she's a, an abused wife, it has to be a gun. She has to shoot that man dead with a proper gun. And there's very little blood in that. There is a little bit of blood on his shirt. Because it's, you know, it's like 7 o'clock at night on a Saturday. Like, be fair. It's, and that's not the BBC telling us to be careful. That's me. That's me as the producer of the show saying, you've got to be responsible for this. That's terrible. Really, the whole back of his body is just blown out against his, the, the suit jacket. If that's a real shot that really has killed him... The, violence and destruction the blood of what's just happened is enormous I actually think there's too little blood in that scene I saw it again recently well about a year ago I thought actually we could have put a bit more on that I think actually there is more blood than you see his hands get in the way of it so accidentally we ended up covering up the blood that was there and you could have seen a bit more so that's what the whole violence thing comes down to it's like really if we were really showing really how violent they are now it wouldn't be able to be shown at nine o'clock at night. Mm. It's that you've got a bit. But I kind of knew that from the start. Stuff like Clive getting shot, the script says cut away immediately. It says the gun goes up to his... That wasn't... It, we weren't even sitting in the edit. There were any shots that we had to drop in the edit. It's like literally Mark Benton. Now the star's truly... <laughs> Isn't that brilliant? Yeah. Vote Mark. I love him. What a lovely man. Up comes that gun. You have to cut away. So actually, I think there's... there's Women, children screaming in that. I think it's more violence in that. Than but you killed Clive as well. You killed yes. the lovely, lovely, doctor lovely. I know, I know, I know. What a symbolic gesture. <laughs> no, you killed the lovely doctor. Who That's completely unreasonable of you. Uh, <laughs> now, so the 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 other thing I think I should ask you about then, which now seems odd in in it, and I wonder, is the burping bin? 
Which, oh, I love the burping. You love the burping. Would you yes, have done the burping bit later? Yes, I do it now. Yeah. I, I think it's a letter. Because I mean, that wasn't in the script, actually. That was, was it not? Uh, no, I saw. I, no? Let me have a think. No, that wasn't in the script. It was something that Keith added. Other uh, bin sort of flipped up. Yeah. I think I was the one going to put a burp. I was the one who sat there going, yeah, put a burp over that. That's hilarious. Right, because that was that was certainly... Surely, if you sit and watch that with a six-year-old, that's marvellous. It was, it, but it was one of the bits where the internet, you know, had its little moment. Bless so I'm, you know... I know, but you imagine there wouldn't have been a moment where the internet had a go, so give him a burp. <laughs> Brilliant. It was an amazing time, though, wasn't it? I mean, you, you must... You, it, having been in the eye of the storm, can you rationalise it now, or do you still look back on it as this sort of curious whirlwind of this you took a hated show you took a show that yes. people thought was a joke mm. and it became what we all knew it was but I frankly thought we'd uh, have a job convincing the world it could be yes I did. it's funny how you it's frightening how much you rewrite your memories once it's all over and I now know not to trust the entire history of Doctor Who no matter how well documented it is because you just tell it slightly differently after it's happening you spin it into an anecdote and um, yes I suppose I suppose we all sat there thinking it'll probably never work. I think that's why it's such a good series. Because we're trying very, very hard to make it work. And there was genuinely a feeling in my head of like, we might only ever get these 13 episodes made. As it started to get made, as the rushes came in, as you started to see Chris and Billy, then, then you began to think, come on, no matter what you think of Doctor Who, this is classy. Once you get Penelope Wilton in there, once you get Simon Callis, so as you went on, production sort of uh, gave you a confidence. But, of course, there was like a year and a half before production where... I literally used to think, right, we'd have a Dalek, and then we'd have the Dalek Empire in episode 13, because that's really just about everything you could ever want to see in Doctor Who. And if that becomes its legacy, and that becomes its memory, that'll be good. Great companion, great Doctor, da-da-da. You know, I kind of thought we had everything in place to be proud of what we'd done. And you ne- people were lining up to say it wouldn't work. Nicholas Schindler, my old um, friend, who, with whom I made most of the dramas I've ever made, um and who was partly responsible for getting people in the right place to get Doctor Who made in the first place. She put me together with Jane Tranter and stuff like that. She used to sit there in pre-production and say, it doesn't matter how much you love it, it's never going to be that big. <laughs> and then it became that big. It was like, no one, no one saw that coming. It was, it was the Unquiet Dead, really. It was like, because it started out huge. You know, and bigger than we thought, but with all those posters, and with Chris and with Billy, you thought, yeah, we've got to get ten and a half million, actually. And then the second week sort of went down to seven or something. And that's normal. If it caught an audience and sampled it, it drops off. That's fine. Going down to seven is completely expected. You're in trouble if the next week goes down to six, then five, then four. That's what dead. That's what you do. And I've had that happen on shows. Oh, my God. I did a show called The Grand of Granada where that literally went down every single week. And um, it's horrible. It's awful. You have to work on those. So we started at ten million, went down to seven million, and then the Unquiet Dead went out and we went up to eight million. That was the moment where I thought, oh, right, that's completely unexpected. That's, that shows we're in with a chance. I remember being in Marks and Spencer's that day of The Unquiet Dead, standing next to someone at the, at the till, and he was going, oh, it's uh, Dickens tonight. He was like that. And I thought, oh, that's, that's a buzz. There's a bit of, you know, obviously just oh, happened to overhear a conversation, but that's, that was the turning point of thinking, right. Funny, isn't it? Here we are. And here we are. And uh, but th- those two um, end of the worlds, which I don't need an anecdote from, because I've got Zoe Wanamaker. Thank you very much. Have you? <laughs> yes. How lovely! Oh, brilliant! <laughs> um, uh, but you'd you'd done Aliens of London and World War Three in the same block. 
as Rose. Yes. So, so this... That was maybe a mistake. That was my idea. That was a lot of work. That was my idea. I was sitting there... Originally, the first block was Rose and the End of the World. Right. And um, I think Keith came in to direct that. And I was like, no, no, no. It does make sense, production-wise, to put Aliens in London with that because it's got the same cast. Yeah. I had my producer hat on there and I was kind of going... Look, if you put it's the same cast, I'll use the same settings. We'll have Jackie Tyler back. Mickey will come back. Book, it just makes booking and, 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 and the costs of everyone easier. Little That's how you treat it on normal drama. See, you look back and you think that was madness because that was me never having worked on something the size of Doctor Who before. Putting three episodes together with all the effects, two different lots of monsters, Space Pig included. It's, it's mental, you know? So uh, we were... Those blocks of threes killed us. Because even then, you lo- you always keep testing yourself. Then we thought we'd learned how to make it. Then we went, we went to the second series going, let's do another block of three. Let's do Christmas Invasion and New Earth and School Reunion all as one block. And that was mad. That was three sets of monsters and things like that. Plus Sarah Jane, plus a canine, plus a million things. You never stopped, never relaxed really. You just kept on, the schedule kept on hitting you back. Well, because we're, we're used to seeing you, and we're used to, and I'm keen for, for, for this to have a different sheen to to because we're used to seeing you on Got Two Confidential, and of course, part of that is the promotion of the show. And it's marvelous and all that sort of thing. <laughs> now, the counter to that is, I also I'm not I like Doctor Who, so I'm not here to dig dirt or do any of that either. This is a celebratory thing. But there must have been, there must be a Russell T Davis who at work is not. You cannot always be. Mr. Oh, this is marvellous. So how does that manifest itself? Do you get grumpy? Do you get cross? Do you hide? Mm, that's interesting. Of course there is. Um, um, and it's interesting. It's not just talking about the confidential stuff as well. It's like I'm still and always will be very cautious to interviews. Just because partly because I was the executive producer. So actually, it doesn't matter what you think of me, My what I say carries an awful lot of weight within Doctor Who world. And so if I picked a particular episode, if I picked the long game, uh, something, and if I said... If I found an adjective to go with that episode, if I said, oh, I think that episode's too blue. It's very blue, that episode. Far too blue. We should have been less blue and had more red in it. Do you know what? Forevermore, that episode will be referred to as the episode that got it wrong because it's too blue. It will. It's just... It's, that'll just be the way it's referred to, the too blue episode. And, you know, and I think partly I don't want to influence people's opinions on that. It's partly why I've never ascribed many adjectives to my doctors or something. It's, it's because they just get picked up. It just will always be described with those adjectives. And, and also, it's as you know, you talk to these actors, you talk to people who are costume designers. I don't ever want the actor who had a marvellous time on The Long Game or something, or Go to the Fireplace or New Earth or something, to read an interview with me and I go, yeah, it's a bit rubbish, that one. Because that might be the pride of their life, that episode. Do you know? And they work very hard on it. And I'm the one going, yeah, it's a bit rubbish. It's terrible. I would never do that to an episode. So anyway, so I don't do that. Um, but also, yes, yeah, so your question is, yes, of course. Um, actually, I think... I genuinely think part of my job as a showrunner is to be in a good mood and to be happy and to transmit that. It was a job, it was an exhausting job, actually, because you literally transmit it and and you have to keep everyone going. Not single-handedly, there's, there's Phil's there, Julie's there, but all of us had to do it. And um, and I think in some ways, in some ways we quite sort of like we're three who rule. We divided ourselves up. I think Julie was was the energy to keep going production-wise. Phil was the temper in many ways. When someone's losing their temper and being spectacular and brilliant, and that would be Phil. So it's just marvellous doing that and loves it. And it works and people trust it. Um, so we kind of fitted into those rules when it was... Of course, there were bad times in production. There were terrifying times in production. Um, 
But I think you don't want to try let alone transmit that to the audience. You don't want to transmit to the cast. You don't particularly want to transmit to that, the whole production. If something's going on in London, if your money's in danger or your schedule's in danger or if someone's saying this doesn't work, you, they're very fragile things, production teams. They are like... They're a little family. They're also like a bunch of children sometimes. and They're also a bunch of hard-working professionals. And they have moods, and, and those moods can affect the production, and moods can change very easily. So you have to... It's your job to keep everyone happy. So yes saying hooray and all this is all brilliant is actually part of the job not just on the confidential cameras but in the office also as it happens I am actually quite gregarious and like a laugh and I do believe that it's a better day if you had a laugh doing something so I fall into that quite naturally I don't find that difficult to do I love having a laugh and I like employing nice people and I'm having a good time with them um, it's funny you know the stories you can never tell I remember the worst day on Doctor Who I can't tell you what was going on it was just one of those days I'm only keeping it quiet because um, cause it's not worth going into. Me and Julie sitting in the BBC canteen about 6.30 and I, and the only thing they had to eat there was a vegetable curry. And we just sat there with this vegetable curry. Like the world had just fallen out of our life. And it had. Everything had fallen apart. We weren't even going to get on air. It was dreadful. And we always laugh. We laugh now when we sit there and say, look, look back at that curry. That vegetable curry we had sitting there. I'm like, oh, I don't know. It's a dark night. It must have been wintry. It was dark. So, yes, there were terrible times in it. Terrible times. But there always are. On every show. Go and talk to them on Coronation Street. Everything you've ever done. Theatre managers. Or the more, you know, it's like... Everyone no, I, has I, those I, stories. I do love it on the forums when people say, oh, and it's all happy, clappy on Doctor Who conversation. Do you really think they're going to go, that thing you just watched, oh, we had a horrible time I mean, is that the other <laughs> thing? Exactly. And the publicity, they go, oh, the publicity always says it's marvellous. Like, Can you imagine? <laughs> say it. Don't tune in next I don't week. Like do you remember when that second series of Heroes went out here? Yeah. And when I loved the first series of Heroes, and then apparently the second series wasn't so good, and our transmission here was a bit delayed. So the second series here launched with Tim Kring's interview saying, I don't think we did a very good job on this series. It launched in Britain with the producer saying, this isn't very good. Funny it fell off air. Because it's like, what on earth are you doing to even allow an interview? It's literally, you're being unprofessional and wasting people's money if you do interviews like that. Yes, you can go there ten years later. I'm not able to do it ten years later, though. Because actually, of course there are more real versions of the production we can tell. But I love everything we did. I love it. Well, it's interesting, because the way that you made Doctor Who, you've alluded to the fact that you had this executive triumvirate. Um, That's not how Doctor Who used to work. That's not how television used to work. No. And in fact, I got an interesting quote from a director who said that he felt that, and I'm quoting somebody else here, (laughs) that executive-led television uh, was often an excuse to protect the audience from the director, and he as a director found that patronising. Um, but there is there is more of a house style, isn't there, that is dictated by an executive level, whereas, and I, I hear directors lament now that they, they don't necessarily have control of casting either, is that they will take their top three choices and the executive might go, oh, well, I didn't imagine her blonde choose choice number two. Yeah. That's a shift. What, what are the advantages and was that an inevitable shift that, that you know, old Doctor Who, for example, um, one week... The, the tone and the incidental music and the casting would be dictated by one director, and so the next week could be entirely different. Mm. Whereas although Doctor Who is an eclectic show, it, it has to have a house style. Is that so that the audience aren't... Mm. Well, I'll let you answer as to why. Yeah, we never use the words house style. It's funny, that because I see this this crop up always in interviews with directors and, and some actors and some producers sort of saying that modern television is a nightmare because you have executive producers who sit there literally sitting in the edit, shaving 17th of a frame off a shot, 
Well, I am the executive producer who sits in the edit, shaving seventeenths of a frame off a shot. And frankly, I look at my stuff and I think it's marvellous. So bring it on if you don't like that. And if you don't like that, don't come and work with me. If you're there, then I'm, there, there were in our time directors who wouldn't have come, uh, you know, because we were, the directors will come with their own designer, say, with their own costume designer. Tough. We've got our designer. We've got a costume designer. If you're coming to work on Doctor Who, you will use our designer and our costume designer. And partly because financially, there's no way you can afford to keep chopping and changing them. That just wouldn't happen. It's completely impractical when you're making a run of 13. That's just not the way it works. If you're the sort of director who doesn't work like that, fine. We'll work together on something else. Let's do a Dickens together one day. We can go and do that. But with this sort of mass-produced, popular family television, that's never going to fit. So I'm completely unashamed about that. It's, I know there are executives who sit in the edit shaving the 17th of a frame off who are a nightmare. But I know there are directors who are a nightmare. I actually know more directors who are a nightmare than I know of executive producers who are a nightmare. Because actually, it's, it's a very strange thing, television. It's like you get a script, you work on it, you develop it. I've worked with lovely directors, by the way. All the brilliant people on Doctor Who. But the structure of, Doctor, of television is very odd in that you get a script, you find a producer, you work with it. You might work on it for two years, you might work on it for two, three years. At the last minute, a director comes in. It's about five weeks before you shoot. A complete stranger walks into production and who might have a completely different take on it, much to your surprise, even though you've interviewed them. And it's a very, it's a, it's a very difficult role to be a producer, but it's also uh, to be a director. It's also a very odd one. The structure of television is practically built so that it's an odd role to come into. So no wonder directors are always complaining. Um, but the brilliant ones always find their way through. And we had such good people on, on Doctor Who. They just joined in the game of it, you know? It's like, and how how did that work in that first season? You know, you have a lineup of directors. So, do you do you interview? Do, do, do agents pitch to you? Yes. How how does somebody convince you just by talking that that they're going to make a good stab at? Well, that's always the way they talk through the um, the script, and you know, we, you, you, it's it's literally an interview. You sit there and you say what you. And it was amazing at the beginning of Doctor Who. Directors were running from it. I mean, we. I mean. Bless Keith, who worked very hard and did a good job in the end. We had hoped to kick off with a prestige director on that series. You know, like one of the great big Dickens directing or big BBC One thriller directors. They all ran around from it. Everyone read it and said, you can't do that on that budget. Everyone. And, just, and, and all of them, frankly, there were people going, Chris Exton and Billy Piper. No, well, when you're a director, you don't, when you're a posh director, you don't come into a show that's already cast. When you're a posh director, you go, I will cast Bruce Anderson, I will cast Billy Piper, or I don't like either of those two. And it's like, this is a great big show. We cast them six months before. We had to book them to get them. You know, that's the nature of the show. So, you know, there are ranks of directors. There are some ranks of directors who will not touch a show that's already got its leads cast. So you're already coming down a level, in a sense, to talk to people who are prepared to do that. I love the people who are prepared to do that because they're the bread and butter of television. They get stuff made. So, um, so anyway, they come into the room. They say, "What do you like? What do you, what, what you know? How do you see the monsters? Do you think it's funny?" To, and it's, it's like, it's like, it's like sitting down talking to a friend about a, a, a show. You might be sitting down this morning. Friends of yours might be going, "Oh, I thought Enemy of the World was boring. I thought it was too much of a thriller, and it needed a monster in it." Actually, I think it needs a monster in it. I got to be honest. And um, I would have had Salamander go off stage and talk to his Zargon overlords. <laughs> then I would, have, I would have gone from. A nine to a ten in my book. <laughs> but, you know, it's like, you, see, you know, someone sits there going, oh, I love the spy thriller aspect. Whoever, it was Barry Letts, wasn't it, who directed that? You know, yeah. so, um, 
So he would have started going, I love the hovercraft, I love this, I love the spy thriller, I love the fact it's set a little bit in the future. You see what they like in a script, you see what they respond to. They, they come into the room to give you notes as well. They'll say, I don't like the scene, I don't get the scene, I don't think... I don't believe she hates him in that moment. That can be interesting. Sometimes they're good script notes. You go, oh, right, right, we'll make a note of that. Sometimes you sit there thinking, he's mad. The whole show is about the fact that he doesn't like her. And he's missed that. People literally have different takes on drama in the way that we all do. So you weed through directors like that. You also look at their previous work and you look at the kind of lenses they use and the lighting they use and, and all that sort of stuff. And in the end, it's just a shot in the dark and you just take a big risk because you never know. You never, never know what you're going to get. And... It's hard, especially, you know, I keep on saying how hard it was on Doctor Who to find directors now, now with green screen experience, with prosthetic experience, with crews who are used to that. Not just because of Doctor Who, but because you've had Merlin, you've had Primeval, you've had Demons, you've had all those shows. So there are crews now. There are people ready to do that sort of stuff. That wasn't the case in 2004. No. It's amazing, isn't it? No. Ten years ago. Yeah. And um, well, then, uh, when Eros Lynn came in, you know, you tested his mettle by giving Lovely, yeah. futuristic end of the world, and then yes. I'm, I'm quite dead. Yes, and yes, he yes. He's yes. got a very broad palette, therefore. Absolutely, yeah. Um, yes, and something like the Unquiet Dead, you kind of think you wouldn't be working in the television if you didn't know how to do this. You, know? <laughs> you have a few stagecoaches, snow machine, off you go. They all want to do that. And but the end of the world was like, none of us knew how to make that. And to, I know it seems daft, but looking at the Temple of Peace, which now crops up in every other Doctor yes. Who, but at the time, I'm sitting there thinking, that room, that room is going to be a spaceship. I was very doubtful for the Temple of Peace, because that's going to be... You know, we're so used to adding on the matte shots and the paintings now, you can see what they're like. In 2004, you're sitting there going, really? One little room in Cardiff's going to do all that? And it was lovely in the end. I thought it was quite unique spaceship interior, because of the texture of the walls and stuff like that. And that spaceship exterior, still one of the best there. We've got Platform One. Gorgeous, that thing. I love that episode. I love that. Um, yes, and Phil always quote, I'm quoting Phil Collison now, but he quotes the end of the world as a moment where we all realised we could make it. Because there were so many monsters in the fan room and the fire and everything like that. It was all and it was all kind of being rewritten as we went along. The saddest thing about the end of the world was that I loved this, was the whole space station was meant to tilt on its side. It was all meant to tilt 90 degrees. And this is when you really realise how far the budget could go. So the, so the floor became the wall, and so the, the windows became the floor. So when Rose is trapped in that building with the sun coming through, she's actually meant to be lying on the glass ah. while the sun starts coming through the glass. Mainly, ba ba there's that Jurassic Park film yes, where the caravan Julian goes... Moore, yes, the glass the, That's exactly what I wanted, because how thrilling is that yeah. sequence? It's not even a very good film, but that bit with the, the vertical caravan is yeah. amazing. And it's a masterpiece of architecture, that, as, as the how to escape from a burning building sort of thing. And so that, I was, oh, all the way through production, they kept saying, yes, we can do this, yes, we can do this, yeah, we can make the floor tilt, yes, we can do the glass, and then like a week before, it's like, no, that's the one thing that's breaking the budget. That would have been brilliant. So it's slightly unexciting now, in that Billy's trapped in a room with breaking glass, and actually her heart out, and the light's coming through, but imagine if she'd been on the glass. But oh, totally. But that's the amazing thing, because as somebody that's heart is always in the past, and I always find I, I like everything when I look back on it. I don't know if that's a Doctor Who fan thing. Yeah. And I remember thinking about, well, you know, well, I like modern Doctor Who because I, I don't like modern stuff anyway. And yet, and I don't know anything about music. When the world started, to, the spaceship started to break up to the strains of Toxic. Toxic. Britain, I went, no, I'm going to like this. This is, this is Doctor <laughs> Who. And this is modern things happening. 
but this is what Doctor Who is. Yes. Even though Doctor Who had never done anything like that actually in the past, yeah, it yeah. was still... So you did a Doctor Who thing without it being something Doctor Who had done. I don't understand that, but well done. <laughs> 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 Thank you. I always loved it when we I loved the sound of drums in the sound of drums. Yeah. It's like, I love it. It's called the sound of drums because of that song. It was... That's, that's why I put that... Actually, that song just sounds like the end of the world somehow. That song sounds like a dictator screaming from a clifftop. Well, I've, I've got DiMaggio. We've got Long Game being too blue, so I think we could go to the episode that I... Can I just tell your listeners how much you're cheating by getting me in? Because I cover I, 60 episodes. I know. You I promised know. us an exhaustive haul of all of <laughs> Doctor Who, and I'm, I'm like the cheap option. It's, it's October, and I'm getting old. Do you want a glass of tea? <laughs> no, I'm all right for the moment. I'll tea you down. Keep going. We're not even halfway through the first season. Thanks so much to Russell. As you can tell, we chatted for Britain. So this is a multi-part interview, which will be seeded throughout the Who's Round run, even though it was recorded relatively near the end of the process. Uh, Next up, we have the first full-length interview with a companion of Doctor Who, as in the 50s of these podcasts, I mean, something extra special with each one. So if you like them before, I think you'll love the next 10 or so. And to show your love, please donate to Russell's charity, which is the Terence Higgins Trust at www.tht.org.uk. Until next time, you've been fantastic. Thanks. Power of the darkness, come to me, come to me, O earthen flesh, power of the spiral, come to me, come to weave me in your web. What the devil is it? It looks like a, a dinosaur egg made of crystal. I've never seen anything quite like it. Not on this planet, anyway. I used to be such a patient person, but I seem to have lost the ability to relax since I began travelling with the Doctor. Damn foolish of you to refuse the offer of a rifle, Doctor! In my experience, it's hard to make friends with someone if you're pointing a gun at them, Mr Whitlock. All of them! Coming down like rain! Yes, I'm afraid our problem is getting a whole lot worse! And there, in my hand, was the Moonflesh which Wakan Tanka had given to me and allowed me to bring back from the stars. Subscribers get more at bigfinish.com.